Welcome to the podcast edition of Weekend Breakfast. It's just the interview today. We're going to be featuring a conversation with Mira Patasan, who is a Peaks Islander. You may know her either from being on the island or also from her first book, Boy Your Soul, which was a memoir. This latest book is a nonfiction piece about a spiritualist community up at Camp Etna, which is um, around Bangor up in Maine. And she talks about what drove her interest in that community, the experiences that she had up at Camp Etna, talking to mediums and spiritualists, and also a little bit about what this might mean for you and me and what it means for Mira in her life now that she's written the book and experienced those individuals. I hope you enjoy. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll always get the latest updates from Peaks Island Radio. Well, we're lucky to have Mira Patasan in the studio. She's going to be talking with us about her latest book called The In-Betweens, The Spiritualist Community of Maine, up at Camp Etna, just north of Bangor. So we're going to join our conversation already in progress um, due to some technical difficulties with the original record. Mira has started discussing the impetus for her book, why she thought of doing this project, and it begins with her telling a story about one of her students who was also struggling with a story that contradicted his faith tradition. He wanted it to be a story about just a, just a ghost hunter and a, a guy who's thrilled by ghosts. I thought the story, the thing that was more fascinating to me was here was a human who he was a Christian, but he also wanted to find physical evidence to prove his faith. He needed proof. And I just kept fighting for that to be the story, fighting for that to be the takeaway. But my student ended up writing about something else, but I kind of held on to that. And at the same time, simultaneously, a friend of mine, her name is Celia Blue Johnson, and she's a an Australian woman who actually her husband, Ian Johnson, Ian... I think his last name is Banning, started Banned Horde Brewing. Mm. Have you heard that, Barry? Yes, yeah. So um, they're Mainers now, and she's also an editor and a writer. And she kept telling me, you, you got to check out this place, Camp Etna. Camp Etna, it's an intentional community of women, and they're spiritualists. And I didn't know what spiritualists were. I thought it was just a group of um, very spiritual people, which it is, but I didn't know it's a religion. So she kept kind of nudging me and nudging me, but I had already written my memoir, and that destroyed me to write it it just takes so much out of you to write a book and i just had theo Mm -hmm. so uh, and i was teaching and we had just bought a house on peaks island and we were renovating it so it was so much so i was like yeah 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 why don't you write about it and she said i can't write about it because my husband's family the women in his family um spend a lot of time there so you can't poop where you eat Mm -hmm. so i kept putting it off and then you know, time went on about uh, a year went on and I, uh, things just kept kind of nudging at me to kind of push me into this direction of what ended up being my book. Um, I went to see a psychic for fun. Mm -hmm. I saw a past life reader for fun, but they all seemed like really novel things to do, but they ended up being really profound experiences. And again, Celia nudged me again and she said, just look up what spiritualism is so i googled spiritualism and the wikipedia page after skimming it i was like this is my book and when i found out who the found how spiritualism was a religion and the founders were just back in the 1800s two little girls who said they could talk to a ghost in their wall and from there it evolved into a a national an international religion uh, less than 30 years after these two little girls, the Fox sisters told their parents, we can talk to a ghost in the wall. Then one thing led to another. And there were over 1 million followers of spiritualism in Europe and the United States within 30 years. So when I found this out, I was like, this is amazing. I got to do this. And that was just based on the history. So then I, I, Theo and Andrew and I got in the car and we drove to Camp Etna, which is two hours away. It's kind of straight shot near Bangor. Um, and we did a tour of the camp. And then I learned the other thing that sold me on dedicating five years of my life to writing this book, um, that it was actually an atten- intentional community that was still going on. And now there's maybe six women who live there year round. Mm-hmm. And it's a female led camp. It's, it's a place where women make all their decisions just on their intuition or spirit they say it's spirit telling them to do certain things and and the the nuances and the 
the fact that the camp is a living, breathing organism itself, and it has a fascinating history, and and the fact that they still go on ghost hunts, and they still do water witching or dowsing, and they do um, table tipping, which is kind of like a Ouija board, but it's a table, and they do seances, and still, it's this living, breathing community, so I, that's what I, I came home, and I quickly told my agent, and she said, go for it. This is going to be awesome. great. And then then I had to do it, mm-hmm. which was the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> so that was actually going to be one of my other questions was, once you felt this passion for this story, how hard was it to sell this uh, the idea of this book? It sounds like it wasn't particularly hard. It wasn't hard to sell. It wasn't hard f- for me to get my agent's support. Um, if I have an idea and it just... It's not the right motivation. Say um, the wrong motivation would be um, this is trendy and I bet they buy it. Or um, this is a flash in a pan and it's just a one dimensional story. She's going to say this is a flash in the pan one dimensional story. Is this what is your intention in wanting to write this? But um, when I told my agent all this stuff, I kind of word vomited to her all these things I I had discovered or, or come across that were already in existence. She said yes. Um, but the hard part after that was writing a book proposal. So when you write a book, you can either write the whole book first or you can write a book proposal, which is an outline of the book. It's like the skeletons of the book. And then your agent or yourself will take it to a publisher and say, what do you think? You want to buy it? And they look for how much will it, can we sell this? And also, is there an audience? And is this a cool book? Um but for the most part, the larger publishers are like, can we make profit off this? Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, who it, it, it is what it is. It's fine. Um, so so the so what I did with my memoir, I wrote the whole book first. And generally with writing, if it's um, nonfiction, you you can sell it based on a proposal. Mm-hmm. If it's a novel or if it's memoir, because memoirs generally read like novels, um, you have to write it first. So with this one, she said, you can write a book proposal. And I was like, sweet, that'll be easy. I can have someone pay me to write a book. But writing a book proposal is also a pain in the butt ski. So <laughs> um, it's with a with a book, you want to be creative and you have to outline it, line it, and you go crazy writing it. But with a book proposal, it's kind of like writing a, a high school book report. And it's sort of painful. And it's... Um, it has a structure that goes with it. it. It's kind of the outline of the book. You create a table of contents. You have to research what the audience is and compare it to other books. So you're trying to convince a publisher this will sell and you will have an audience for this. Um, so that part took me probably a little over a year. And honestly, that was mostly because of procrastination. And and I think procrastination is 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 part of the process. It's totally part of the process. So I would stare at a wall. <laughs> I'd clean the house. Um, I was also teaching. And and I think sitting and, and waiting was me just meditating on what this book would be. At the same time, when I was writing the book proposal, I was spending time with these ladies at Camp Etna and I was getting material to write this book proposal. Maybe three or four days worth of time with them spread out so writing the book proposal it was kind of like remodeling your house except you you don't have money to do it and also (laughs) you need money to remodel your house but it's a lot of work um and then once I finished the proposal it was I think it was maybe a year and a half ago two years ago two years ago maybe um it took about two to three weeks to sell the book to buy find a publisher but the book proposal was going to be more of a memoir the book was going to be more of a memoir it was going to be like eat pray love ghosts because <laughs> I thought I thought that there would be a bigger audience for that so most of the publishers turned it down because they didn't want it to be eat pray love ghosts and that's not how I pitched it but I just said I'll be in this it'll be a story of a um, very sexy very hot very beautiful young woman who um, is spending time with these spiritualist and she comes out of it learning something new about herself mm-hmm. through their community which the book actually kind of is about but I'm more in the background um so a lot of publishers turned it down because of that and mm-hmm. 
And then one publisher, Norton, W.W. Norton, said, um, you know, we will take this book. We will make an offer on this book, but you got to get out of the picture. <laughs> and I said, done. I'm done. Sure. That's fine. Um, because with my memoir, no one wanted to buy it. No one would really? buy this book. It took me maybe eight years to sell the book. Oh my goodness. And even my agent, who's amazing. She's Ann Patchett's agent. She's, which is like her, her claim. I'm not her claim to fame. Ann Patchett <laughs> is her claim to fame. And she even said like, I can't sell this book. I sold it on my own. Um, but I, a lot of the publishers said the, the A word abortion is in this book. We don't know how to do PR on a book with abortion in mm. it. I was like, are you kidding me? There's such an audience. There's women. So right, right. people with uterus would read this book. So anyway, um, so with this book, once someone said, yes, if you change it a little, um, we'll take it. And the editor who fought for this book, who, who ended up buying this book at Norton, she said, you know, you can still be in it. I'm just going to tell these people you're not. So it's also impossible not to be in a book when... Um, you're the only other person in the room with a medium who's mm. telling you things from a so supposed spirit about yourself. So I right. couldn't say if there were a journalist in this room, this is what the, so, <laughs> um, so anyway, that was the process of selling the book. And then they gave me one year to write it, which is crazy because the book itself takes place. I cover the history of spiritualism from 1848 to now but the the kind of the platform, the stage that the story is set is one summer at Camp Etna mm -hmm. because the, the camp opens to the public in the summertime. So it's three months. So when I would go in there and do my journal, do my reporting um, and field work and gathering information, it was the, during those three months. So that would be up until the end of August. And then the book was due December. Wow. So I was like, there's no way I could do this. I have two children. And, um, whoops. Oh, maybe that was a ghost. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was doing the whole time I was at Camp Etna. I was like, did you hear that? That was a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're like, no, that was the wind, Mira. But, um, oops. So anyway, um, I asked for an extension for the book deadline. And again, since it was so hard for me to sell my book and I felt like it was such a privilege to have a book deal that I was kind of pussyfooting. I didn't want to upset anybody, but they they ended up giving me an extra six months, which was a, a godsend. Also, I have to say Ellen and Lisa and everyone at their cafe was a godsend too because I would go in there and just bang my head on the wall and they would just, you can do this mirror, go for it. You could they feed me and send me back to my desk. But um, um, yeah, and then I ended up writing the book and it was it was a little hard at first. But um, one interesting story was that I called one of the mediums uh, during my time putting the book together and I just said, she gave me a reading, like a, um, it's just called a reading when they, say i don't know if i believe it or not but they say i'm talking to to spirits to people mm -hmm. who have passed and they're going to give me some messages for you and i was like can you tell them to write the book for me <laughs> and <laughs> she said actually actually the the past life women past of camp etna um they're telling me if you organize your office and sit down at your computer, they will download information into you and it will go right into your book. And so I organized my office. Mm -hmm. And um, and after that, probably because I had an organized office or maybe because the women who have passed from Camp Vetna, it was really easy to write this book. Interesting. And I also didn't have a whole lot of time again to write it. So I, I was pulling all-nighters. And um, I will say Sam and Laura Reading, who live on... What street is that? Sterling? Right next to us, the library, the street the library's on. Yeah, Sterling. Yep. They would they would see me and say, like, you know, at three in the morning I went to go to the bathroom and I saw you up in your window writing and <laughs> and um it was a lot of all nighters, but I plowed through this book. It was really easy to write. It was really easy to write. <laughs> Once you listen to the advice. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> the, the, yeah, exactly. So I, I did notice, so I, I, read, I had read a sample of the book, and I did notice that you do include yourself in the book to some degree. And that was one of the things I wanted to talk about. And sure. it sounds like the the publisher had given you um, some feedback on it, too, or the publishers that you were shopping it out to. And I remember when I was in college, like some stodgy old writing professors would always say, take yourself out. Right. And they would they would say that you shouldn't be in, in the book. But it seems like there's been a little bit of a shift recently where 
it's becoming more acceptable. And I think it's becoming a more rich story. What sort of choices did you make sure. about the way that you included yourself in this? Was that stodgy old professor a man? <laughs> yes. <yeah. laughs> okay, so, <laughs> I mean, one thing I noticed is um, when writing this, people would say, you know, how, uh, you're, if this is journalism and you have to be objective, I'm sure, I'm assuming you, it's hard to be objective. And and what I realized, this is this book is a book of history and it's a book that of history that's never really been told before because not many people have written about spiritualism one one woman um her name's dr ann broad and she's a i think she's a, a feminist studies professor at harvard or she's a historical studies a history professor at, at harvard and she's written a book about spiritualism through a feminist lens but I think it's just a book of history and it's told through a feminist lens because most history is written or is about white men. And so to to take yourself out of it completely is saying that this is just this is the truth and this is the this is objective. This is the whole way it happened, which is BS in my opinion, because and your opinion, too, um, that there's so many ways to tell a story. We can all stare at a pumpkin and we all see it a different way. So. Um, so I mean, not to sound like a sexist, but the, when we were selling this book, it was my editor is a woman and she was telling me, I have to convince a, a, a room full of men to buy this book. So we're going to say you're not in it. And, and when you write it, just don't make it about yourself. And so I don't want to make it about myself. It's not, it's just because I'm a lady writing this book doesn't mean it's going to be about me, even though I did pitch it that way, because I thought that was the only way I could get someone to trust me to write history. And I'm not a historian. So um, they said, just write it and just write what you see. And I think also memoir, sometimes people think about memoir as an autobiography so sometimes I wrote my memoir, I wrote it when I was about 28, 29 years old, and I wasn't writing an autobiography, I was writing a snapshot of something that happened in my life. It was about a year's worth of time and then some family background. And so some people would say to me, and they still do, um, you're too wrong, you're too young to write a memoir. Huh. And I'm just like, what? why do I have to be old to write a memoir? It's not like I'm, I mean, some people have super boring lives and then they write an autobiography. Some people have super boring lives and then they have one year of something crazy that that happened and they want to share what they learned from it. So I think people kind of, they, they are not open to alternatives sometimes that I don't know why that is, but, um, I think also, I think the re to answer your question, the reason it's it's becoming more acceptable for people to, to sort of be in their book is because people are a little more woke nowadays and they're realizing that nothing is objective and, and it's also subjective. It's just, we're, we're, and the more subjectivity we bring out there, the more we talk about it and our different opinions and are open to hearing other people's opinions, the better because we have different, we get to look at and see things different ways and expand our, expand our brains. So um, I also think with this book, it just could, it would be so weird if I weren't in it mm -hmm. because um, I try, I, tr I try to tell this book from the, the world of the women in there and try to be, as open to their way of seeing things, but I need something to bounce it off. Right. And sort of um, kind of a contrast from like, here's what I'm used to. Here's what we're all kind of used to. Here's another way of people, of how people live. So, um, and I also, had, there needed to be a little levity because it's so yeah, much yeah. about death. So <laughs> I had to add a couple fart jokes in there. <laughs> One of the things that I found um, interesting, and actually it's it works really well with your title, The In-Betweens, is that in some way, the way that you've written this places you in between this community and the reader. You're sort of this intermediary who's helping people like me while I was reading it go, oh my God, is this for real or is or what's going on here? Right, and you're right. asking those same questions in your own way in parts of the book. Um, and I think that that's really helpful as somebody who's reading it and experiencing it. It makes you feel more um, sort of connected to the whole oh, story. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, and in a way, like a writer 
not to toot my own horn, um, but to toot my own horn. No, but a writer is a medium in some ways. Um, and the definition, I don't know if there's a real definition of mediums, but a medium is someone who, and they say what they do is they, they are just the channel from, so they take what spirit is telling them and they're interpreting it the best they can and sharing the message with the sitter. So, so that's, I mean, this title just came to me. Usually titles come to me like when I'm not thinking, when I'm sleeping or falling asleep, when I'm in the shower, when I'm just doing something else. And this one just kind of flashed, flashed in my head. Uh, and, and these are also, they're in betweens, they're mediums. And, and as the writer, I was trying to be the medium for the reader too. And also as a kind of a character in the story, I was like torn. So another a side note, another reason I wrote this book is or that I felt compelled to write this book is because shortly after having Theo I kind of went a little berserk and and I think that's called postpartum Mm -hmm. and so I felt you know I, I my whole body morphed then I had a child and then I was responsible for keeping it alive through my breast milk and then like my hormones were all over the place. My brain had changed and I went from this primitive, I I had become this like primitive creature and I was also like supposed to function normally in society and I just snapped. And at one point, I, I don't know if anybody ever actually saw this, but I just like took off. Andrew and I were on a walk with the dogs and Theo and I just, I was like, we were discussing finances and I just, just said I can't and I wa- I just walked away and I walked into the woods and I was not thinking I was just so out of it and I, all I need I just needed to be in the woods for some reason it was strange and he called kitty and <laughs> it was just really weird but I think it was just this primitive uh it, like uh, a primitive need to be somewhere else and to be in this it was like my intuition was like, go to the woods, go to be with nature. And so when I I recovered and I just, you know, I sought some help, but, and I'm fine now, but when this was happening and I was learning about these women of Camp Etten, I was like, you know, maybe they're onto something and maybe I can learn something from them. They live their lives based solely for the most part on their intuition. And they say, you know, if if something tells me turn right here, I turn right there. Or if I need this, I ask spirit, how do I get this? So I also went there personally because I wanted to know what they were doing that I wasn't doing that maybe I could incorporate into my life. I, mm-hmm. I didn't, I was a little fearful that what if I, what if I feel like I found myself there and I'm like, Andrew, guys, we're moving to Camp Etna, but that didn't happen. So that was one of the things that I noticed too, is that there are relationships and families present in the book at Camp Etna. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about how those relationships looked. Was there anything different or like palpably, um, out of the mainstream to you about the way that people interacted up there? Totally. Um, well, this isn't totally out of the mainstream, but most of the women there had been divorced and remarried several times. And and it seemed like one of the patterns was that they, when they got married, they were kind of in a patriarchal marriage or they were sort of like the, the beta. And, and the husband would go to work and they would stay home. And they were also kind of in their most of the women there are in their fifties or sixties. And so finally, and which was common back then more common than it is now. Um, so most of them were divorced and remarried several times. And the, the women were the dominant ones in the marriages. I think nowadays it's pretty equal. It's pretty, pretty equal, but it was like a total reversal where it was like this female led society. And the men were more like, okay, whatever you say. And then um, most of them had all worked in the health industry, healthcare industry, and either retired or left their jobs to be full-time mediums. So they all were caregivers, but now they were just straight up full-time mediums. And uh, and another thing that was so out of the mainstream was th- all their decisions were just based less on like logic or how much money it would bring in the family, but um, what did spirit tell me to do? And 
And for the most part, they were all doing pretty okay. Um, the, it's a really cheap place to live because the camp is owned by um, the the Camp Etna. Camp, so it's a member society. And then anyone who has a house there pays rent to Camp Etna, but it's super cheap. Or if you buy a house, a house on the, a lot there would be maybe 1200 bucks. Wow. Crazy cheap. So... With, but also within the camp, there's a lot of infighting because it's pretty hard to run an intentional community. Mm-hmm. So so there was the, the more I was there, the more I realized who had beef with whom and how it who whom had beef, who had beef, beef with who. Um, so and 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 there was some fighting about money, too, because these are people. Mm-hmm. And and even if they're very spiritualist people, you know, they're flawed. So for the for the most part, and they just spent a lot of time talking to the dead. That was the weirdest thing about it, but also the most enlightening and interesting thing about it. So, yeah, you describe in the book a, a couple of times where you sort of participated or observed um, that sort of conversation. What was it like the first time that you had witnessed that? Oh, well, the first time I witnessed it was uh, the first thing I wrote about which was the table tipping, which is the introduction of the book. And it's also, I put it on Carol's listserv. It was an excerpt that was in Buzzfeed and it was very disappointing because I didn't, so I didn't know what table tipping was. And for those of you who don't know, the thousands who are listening who don't know what table tipping is, is table tipping is basically when a medium and the sitter or sitters have their hands on a table very lightly and the medium ask questions to spirit and supposedly the table will move. And so I asked this woman, Janice, who was the one who invited me to watch and be a part of table tipping, what it, what to expect? You know, I said, will it move? Is it going to be kind of like a Ouija board when you sort of kind of move it yourself? Um, And she said, Oh, the table would be flying around the room. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, that's such an exaggeration. But when I got there, we sat down and I was so ready and I was so excited and and the table was literally moving back and forth, right to left, hopping around like a clod hopper. And and it was Janice moving the table. <laughs> so I was like, this is bunk. Yes, this table's moving. So I'd say to her, Janice, you know, as it was happening, I basically like backed off and let her move the table around. I said, Janice this table, this is impossible. Like this is you moving the table. And she would lift up all her fingers except one. And she'd say, if I were moving the table, could it do this? And, (laughs) and I was like, yes. So it was really disappointing at first. And at the same time, it's because my expectation was that the table would either do nothing or literally float unassisted. But then I, on the drive home, I realized like, yeah, she's moving the table, but according to her the 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 spirit is kind of guiding her hand and telling her how it should move it was so it was just way more nuanced than that um and it, and she had also said when we did this table tipping thing she said ask it yes or no questions so i'd say you know is this a family member who's passed yes and then I'd say, you know, the, the, the one person in my family who has passed closest to me would be my brother. So I said, is it Julian? Yes. And then I didn't really have any questions because it was just so awkward mm-hmm. and slightly invasive. And um, although I had gone there voluntarily and she, so she said, yeah, he's here. He's giving you a hug. And like the table leaned onto me and it just felt so awkward. But then on the drive home, I realized, you know, because of Janice and the table she moved, or that moved with her, this was the first time in a long time I'd actually really thought about my brother. And that gave me some peace and it forced me to feel what it felt like to be around him. So that's when I realized, you know, there's more to it than I would assume. And I had been assuming. And so throughout the rest of my time at Camp Etna, I was hoping to see a ghost but then I had to let go and just say, like, I have to learn how to see things the way they see things. And although I can't see ghosts and they say they can, it's just way more nuanced and less black and white than I just expected it to be. 
And and then I learned later on through the gossipy women of Camp Etna that Janice isn't a certified medium. Uh-huh. So she and how some of them said table tipping is bunk and that's the old school way. And now there's what do they call it? There's physical mediumship and there's mental mediumship and physical mediumship is sort of banned nowadays and mental mediumship is where it's at. Mm-hmm. So, so I learned a lot from that first slightly disappointing experience. And then my very, very last day at camp before I went home to write the book, that's when I had the most spooky, weird, convincing experience, but I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's like the last five pages of the book. <laughs> yeah, don't spoil it for anybody. <laughs> okay. um, can you tell us a little bit about mental mediumship in a way that's not going to spoil your book? Sure. Um, <laughs> so uh, physical mediumship was the first type of mediumship. And when the Fox sisters kind of came to the stage... Um, they display so physically you'd hear it you'd see it you'd you'd be able to touch it and it was more of like um, table tipping it was some there was something called uh, trumpet mediumship where they'd place like this trumpet in the middle of a table and they turn off the lights and it would float Mm -hmm. supposedly so or it was like ectoplasm would come out of people's bodies (laughs) and and since mediumship and since um, spiritualism was so popular back in the time of the Fox sisters and up until the early 1900s, there were so many people doing it that frauds were rampant. And the reason, one of the impetuses for physical mediumship to become banned was actually Harry Houdini. Oh, really? And Houdini... I mean, this is a long story. Somebody should write a chapter in a book about, which I did. But Houdini had a, he was so in love with his mother. He, he and his mother were super, super close. And after his mother died, he went to see a medium. His, his good friend, um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who is the author of Sherlock Holmes series, was a big spiritualist, huge spiritualist. So he said to Houdini, I'm going to take you to see a medium. And we're going to contact your mother. And and the medium, I believe, was actually Arthur Conan Doyle's wife. And she was going to do something. I think it was called scrying or uh, I forgot what it's called. But uh, basically, she would have she would be the medium and she would write down what the the spirit said. And so they had the seance with Houdini's uh, with Arthur Conan Doyle's wife and she said, oh, your mother's here. And she was writing in perfect English what his mother said. But Houdini wasn't buying it because his mother barely spoke English. Huh. And so he was so upset and so hopeful, but so upset and so angry about it and so fed up with mediums because they were gain- gaining as much popularity as he was. But they were saying, you know, we're legit. We don't need to do tricks. This is actually really happening while he was doing tricks and doing magic but it was, you know, it was chaining himself up and dropping himself into water in a shark tank or something. Um, so he was so angry in so many ways because of mediums and then so disappointed because he couldn't contact his mother. He spent the majority of the rest of his career trying to debunk mediums really, and find the frauds. <laughs> and he set up, he set up seances and he would be like, ah, and so... <laughs> He actually went to Washington, D.C. to make it a crime to be a medium. And he called it fortune telling. And he ended up making a spectacle out of himself in front of Congress. But um, because of Houdini exposing a lot of frauds, actually, the the NSA, which is the National Spiritual Association, banned physical mediumship. And which led to mental mediumship, which is basically, you know, when mediums like, did you ever see the show Long Island Medium? Yeah, yeah. Teresa Caputo, (laughs) they'd walk up to somebody and say, you know, I have your mother here. I can see her. You can't, but I can. Or I can hear her. I can I can feel how she died. Um, So that's all mental mediumships. It's like seeing a therapist, you know. Um, So so now um, physical mediumship is not outlawed anymore, but. Uh, mediums are are doing that less and less and more of it is like um like sometimes they call it life coaching Mm -hmm. so uh 
it's like life coaching is like a more acceptable term for mediumship. Uh, so, so mediumship now is like, there's clairvoyance who can see there's clairaudience who can hear clairsentience that can feel the, the person there. Um, so that's the difference now. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. And in fact, talking about life coaching or like coming up in different ways to talk about things, I think is um, both fascinating in one sense. And then also, I think maybe a little more accurate, right, to talk about sort of what we now know about neuroscience and the way that maybe we're making space when we think about mediums, when we think about um, sort of an in-between, making space to have some realizations in our minds. Did they they pay any um, sort of credence to that, to that idea of... Um, this is a space for you to sort of wrestle with things, kind of like you said that you sure. were thinking about your brother for the first sure. time. Sure. I mean, it depends on the medium. Some just say like, ah, you know, this, there's a spirit here. They just want me to t- send a message. And once they, once I do, they'll leave me alone and go away. Huh. Um, and then some of them are really thinking of themselves of, as life coaches mm-hmm. and they do other practices. Like there's this one medium who did something called the Akashic records, which is actually a Sanskrit word for the records of your life or the life records. Um, and she basically said, you know, I'm going to come, I'm going to tap into the, your past, present and future files of that are out in the universe, which is pretty epic. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she would say, and I say, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And she say, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm reading that you need to spend more time on date nights with your husband <laughs> and, and all these things that had nothing to do with anyone who had died. And, um, and, and some of the things she told me after one session were some of the things that I was waiting for my therapist to tell me mm. in, uh, what, what kind of cognitive therapy where she would just ask me a lot of questions for years and and i i just wanted her to say get a babysitter and go on a date night or exercise more or discipline yourself to meditate and instead the mediums would always say these things and i don't know if it's just because it's obvious or if because they i don't know i don't know what they there's so many things you can tap into and um the one thing i learned that you know, when I came in there as just Mira, the lady, the person, um, wanting to learn things and, and do what they do, I can't say whether or not it works because I haven't tried it because I was going in there mostly as a journalist. So if I really wanted to do what they did and and justify whether or not what they were doing is legit, I'd have to practice and learn how to do it myself and and i think they spend lots of years disciplining themselves to do that and i can barely meditate <laughs> yeah i know yeah everyone well not everyone but you read on the internet where everybody's meditating you know 20 30 minutes a day and i'm yeah. like what i can't do it for how 30 seconds <laughs> yeah exactly and you have kids <laughs> right exactly um so one of the other interesting things that you talk about is how um in in this community there is a small number of mediums who are there year-round but that people uh, it, it sounds like somewhat flooded over the summer. Where are, do you have a sense of where spiritualists are other than Camp Edna in the United States? Sure. Um, Well, I think there's a big difference between spiritualists and mediums. So spiritualists are basically members of the spiritualist church who have kind of pledged that, you know, I'm a spiritualist. Like I myself go to the Brackett Street Church, but I'm not any one religion. Um, Spiritualists are people who go to the spiritualist church. But there's a lot of people who say, you know, I'm spiritual, or there's a lot of people who are mediums that don't go to spiritualist church that are just, you know, I can talk to dead. And there's a difference between psychic and medium. A psychic is a person who can tell supposedly the past and the present, the past and the future. A medium is a psychic who can tell the past and the future, but also can see dead people and communicate with dead people. So I think there's a lot of, oh, and another thing is mediums and the spiritualists that I've talked to all say we're all born with it. We're all born with this ability, a psychic ability and a mediumship, mediumistic ability. But as we grow and as we're educated, it gets educated out of us. Mm. So, um, so that's that's interesting to me. But I've met a lot of people everywhere I go who say, oh, I can talk, I talk to the dead all the time. Or um, I think I'm psychic because sometimes I'll think something and then it happens. And so 
we could all have a little bit of it. Um, we could have had it not educated out of us. Uh, we could, since we don't meditate and our minds are so busy with chatter, we, we don't tap into it. But I, since I've been working on this book, I've met a ton of people who talk, see mediums. Um, I've met people on the island who are mediums unofficially or psychics unofficially. There's also, you know, there's all these different, I don't know if they're even subcultures, but practices that are intermingled. Um, one of the women at the camp who who's in the very end of the book, who made me kind of a believer, she actually was or is an astrologer who studied with, and I, I forgot her name, but it's um, Tootie's mom. Oh, no way. <laughs> who is a world famous astrologer and astrology instructor or teacher or guru. So all, and, and, you know, I was speaking with some uh, friend on the Island recently whose mother passed and she just saw a medium last week. And so it's often, it's kind of a ha ha thing that you go when you have a bachelorette party or something or let's girls, let's go to a psychic dinner. But really it's, it's, it's more common than you think. Um, but it's since it's become kind of taboo, people are sort of quiet about talking about it. But it is m- much more often it's women who see psychics and mediums. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason is because women are less, this is my bias, but I think women are less embarrassed to get in touch with that feminine side of I mean, they call it like the feminine brain and the male brain the or I think that's what they call it. But that that sort of like intuition instinct kind of way of exploring things rather than just like concrete logic. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So uh, when we had gone down to New Orleans, for example, there was a whole history of the medical culture down there. And before it became before Louisiana became a state. There was this huge number of people who were um, female practitioners of various kinds of herbal medicine. And the second that Louisiana became a state, all of it had to be regulated. All of it had to be very left brain analytical. This has to be backed Mm. up by science and people lost their jobs. Like these, these are people who had considered themselves, you know, medicine workers, basically. They were the same as physicians. And then all of a sudden they, yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden they got put into this separate box. And they had to sort of go underground and largely they were women and largely they had some element of a spiritual side to what they were doing. Oh, totally. Um, and it, it sounds in some ways like it's similar or, or at least like it rhymes to, to what you're talking about, where if it's not analytical and left brained, then we can't trust it in a, in a male dominated culture. Yeah. And I, and one thing I didn't do in this book was explore um the way science is looking at life after death. And, and the reason I didn't do that is because I didn't want the book to be about, is this true or not? Is this real or not? Cause that would be a really just typical meh way of doing things. And also it would mean like this, the way we're doing things now is right. But the way we're doing things now is not right. So many people are addicted to medicine and so many people rely on medicine, not as like a quick fix to get you through. So you can actually do the work to do the healing, but just to always be medicated. Uh, And same with the women at Aetna, the majority of them, I'd say like 99.9% of them did practice holistic herbal um, health practices. There were a lot of tinctures going on. And I I mean, I'm a believer in that kind of stuff. And it's been around forever, like Ayurvedic medicine and Ayurvedic practices, something they incorporate. And another thing I learned through spiritualism is it, it borrows, or people would say it's cultural assimilation, but it borrows from different religions and different cultures. A lot of the stuff that they practice comes from, I mean, a lot of other religions and a lot of other cultures have completely different death rituals or death, life after death practice or belief systems. Um, ours is to me the weirdest and the most incomplete because like for the the, the basic general more common death practice here is someone dies you schedule a funeral really quickly you you scramble to get everything set up you have like three days to mourn and then you move on and like what and 
and and I think that's awful and it's incomplete. Um, and a lot of the things that these spiritualists and mediums were doing were borrowing from a lot of stuff from the Wabanaki traditions and just a lot of Indian, like um, Indian Asian mm-hmm. practices. And it was very, it's very helpful for people. Mm-hmm. Right. There's definitely some wisdom there. Like you said, it's incredibly old traditional practice. Totally. And almost in a way, it's um, similar to what you're talking about before of educating it out of ourselves, right? That's, yeah. And I think that there is definitely something lost when we do that. Yeah. So we'll be back in just a minute to wrap things up. Uh, we're talking to Mira Patasan here on Weekend Breakfast on Peak Island Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Kind of magic. So, we're going to wrap things up with Mira, but before we do, I wanted to make sure that we had an opportunity to sort of whet your appetite for the book. Uh, and Mira's going to read us an excerpt of the book. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this is chapter, what chapter is this? This is chapter three and it's called Ghost Hunting 101. And um, just to, to tell you where I'm at, um, this is, I basically go on a, a ghost hunt with, one of the mediums from the camp, her name is Dr. Barbara Williams. So we went to this place called Parsem. It's Parsons Field Seminary and it's in Maine. It's, it's about an hour and a half away. And I'll just read you a short little excerpt. So Bar- Barbara leads ghost hunts at the Parsons Field Seminary, but she kind of rolls her eyes at it because she says, you know, I don't need all this fancy equipment to see ghosts, but I, I will lead these, you know, Maine ghost hunting expeditions to earn money for Parsons Field. So they will pay her, the the kids who come out with all their crazy equipment. And um, they really dress like they're going to a cosplay thing. And then Barbara just donates it to Parsem. And she says that she goes to these ghost hunts also as an act of service, community service for the dead, because she and her husband, Steve, during these hunts will find any trapped spirits. So apparently ghosts are people who have died and have not released themselves to go to the light, to the white light. So she'll find any ghosts and offer to release them to the, to the light, (laughs) which was interesting. Okay. Cautiously, Barbara led us up the darkened stairwell. Of course, this this stairs. Oh, I'm going to start over. Cautiously, Barbara led us up the darkened stairwell. Of course, the stairs squeaked. Of course, we tiptoed. Tiptoed, blindly, we rubbed the walls beside us with our hands, feeling our way up the stairs with our fingers until we reached the second floor. Barbara swung left and guided us into what was the auditorium, but with the lights out, it was a vast and airy obscurity, like we'd entered a black hole. The group dispersed into the black room immediately, but Barbara and Steve hung back. They leaned on a big wooden table, and while our eyes slowly adjusted to the darkness, we listened as everyone else cased the joint like exterminators. They were there for the thrill of the chase, to play with their equipment and to catch ghosts in their act. They were there to hunt. And while they bungled around in the dark room, poking and prodding with their gear and gadgets, eager to catch some ghouls, all Barbara had to do was look and listen. She didn't need the heat cam or the laser grids or the infrared motion sensor. Tonight, she was chaperoning a group whose money, which they had handed handed her at the beginning of the night, she would immediately donate to Parsem's restoration fund. But she didn't do this kind of thing generally for cash. Beyond that, ultimately, it seemed the sincerest motive that Barbara and Steve had in mind when mingling with the departed was more along the lines of an act of community service to the deceased. They were there to release trapped souls. Do not go into the attic alone, please, Barbara called out into the darkness. Sorry about that, a voice apologized. There's an older gentleman up there and he will attach, attach to you, Barbara explained. He is disruptive and he, he has pushed many people. Then she turned to me and said, the younger spirits usually don't come out when he's out and about. About 10, 12 minutes passed, then 15. By now, my eyes had adjusted to the darkness a bit. I stood up and walked towards the center of the room, but the sounds of the shuffling feet and little clicks of plastic sh- towards the sounds of shuffling feet and little clicks of plastic shutters. Suddenly, there was a loud noise, a voice. Business, solo, human. The voice was piercing, monotone, and sharp, and it came from the head of the room. 
the auditorium stage maybe and it clearly did not belong to that of a human what the heck was that i barked and reflect reflectively reflexively gripped an arm next to me which happened to be steve's business solo human the voice said again it sounded terrifying and disgusting like a demonic robot that's the ovalis said steve it just picked up on something the ovalis I'd learned just moments too late to prevent a near stroke was a piece of paranormal investigation equipment. Pocket-sized and powered by batteries, the gizmo was said to convert emotional readings into words. It was a voice box for ghosts. That's all I'm going to give you. <laughs> That's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd never heard of, of a box like that before. Was oh, that yeah. your first experience? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they actually, Barbara and Steve actually came to Peaks Island Um one spring because they wanted to make sure my house wasn't haunted wow. so they did a clearing and a cleansing of the house and they did we did drive around and they pointed out which houses on peaks island were haunted did, did, did they drive by this one no this one is not haunted <laughs> <laughs> but they said um uh they said that they said the fifth main is haunted of wow. course and they said that captain joe's house is mm, haunted too yep. Yeah, and he would certainly back that up. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, no oh, yeah. way. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, we Crazy. should have him on sometime for oh, like, yeah. a, a roundtable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's fascinating. Where is the best place for people to buy this book to support you? I would say any uh, independent bookstore. Um, my favorite is print, and I also love Longfellow. Mm -hmm. They can buy it on Amazon, um, but I would... I would highly recommend an independent bookstore. If you don't have the money to buy a book, you can get it at the library, of course. Um, and there's also going to be an audio book probably at the library as well. Um, and if you'd like to come to one of the launches, um, October 29th, 7 p.m. at Print Bookstore is the official launch for the book. And there will be a medium there giving readings to the audience. And if you can't make it then, we have one, I believe it is November... 14th, but I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, the women from the library will be putting up uh, flyers, but we're going to be having a reading at the community center at the library as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. You'll have to look out for that. That's great. Yeah. Awesome. And if people want to find your other writings, where can they go? Sure. It, you can go to my website. It's www.miramptacin, which is M-I-R-A-M-P-T-A-C-I-N.com. Right. Fantastic. Yeah. Right. Thanks so much for coming over, Mira. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Bye. You're listening Thank to Peak Salon Radio. This is Weekend Breakfast.